Hello and welcome back to AlderPod, the Aldersgate Cycle Podcast. Today's episode is number 27. This is chapter 24 of the Aldersgate, In the Belly of the Beast. Sylvan was relaxing with Captain Hyrum in the cabin of the Arabella, the ship that had been hired to transport him and his men to the border between the territories and Soderum. As the Queen's ships went, it was one of the most impressive, and most often used for soirees and parties high above the castle. Apparently the Queen had wanted to say something to Sylvan that words could not express, and so she had arranged for this rather overwhelming show of decadence. He had been dining with Hiram just a little earlier, and had found the man to be a good conversant, much to his surprise. Airships were so much more civilized than their aquatic counterparts, and though they moved slowly, it was always deliberately and, for the most part, smoothly. A good conversation was a welcome addition to that comfort. Hiram was not much older than Sylvan, but significantly less fit. He was very round about the middle, and between his thinning hair and spectacles, he looked more at home in a library than a captain's chair. Yet, he was quick-witted and a wonderful storyteller. Having been the captain of the Arabella for the last ten years, he knew her inside and out, and assured Sylvan that, although she was a bit of an eyesore on the horizon, she was most safe and, quite truly, a wonder. Still, Hiram was saying, as he set his snifter down on the mahogany inlaid table before him, I've got to admit things have been odd of late, as I'm sure you've taken note of, Sir Dedois. I've heard some of the strangest reports from the borders by the air guard, to mention your average deckhand. Strange, asked Sylvan, who was beginning to doze off listening to Captain Hiram's sibilant voice. He grinned. What isn't strange these days? Butchering orders, assassination attempts, dissolving the very order of the asp? Hiram winced a little as he took another swig. Uh, not what I mean, not well. I take it you're a man of the military, not keen on stories of a more unusual nature. I won't bore you with the details. Oh, I'm a man of the military, all right, but uh, not as staid as all that. Come, tell me something intriguing, said Sylvan. Both men were, by all accounts, on their way to complete drunkenness at this point. Sylvan knew that the trip would be less unsettling that way, and Hiram had more liquor in his cabin than Sylvan had seen in months. Add to that the comfort of a warm stove, the occasional hiss of the valve within the steam engine, and the gorgeous meal they'd just consumed, and Sylvan was in the mood to hear anything. "'Truly?' asked the captain. He shook his head a bit, his jaws wobbling. "'No, no, it's really the Queen's business I ought not be rattling about now.' "'Well, two things,' said Sylvan, leaning forward. The amber whiskey sloshed forward in his snifter and dribbled down through his fingers, but he didn't say anything. "'One, I am the Queen's nephew. Bastard or not, blood is blood, and I swear on my blood I'll not say a word.' Hiram nodded, impressed. And secondly, I'll tell you a story for a story, said the knight, leaning back and cracking his neck. Oh, go on then, that's a good exchange, I say, said the captain. And for the first time since he had left that obscenely quaint fishing village, Sylvan told someone about the strange woman and the note about the Aldersgate. He had, of course, destroyed the letter, foolishness all around, if he had delivered every scatterbrained message ever given to him by a passing peasant, he'd never have time to go about his nightly duties. He had expected that the story would be amusing to Hiram as it had been to him. Sylvan had even elaborated a bit on how ugly the gold crone was. However, even in his drunken delight, 
he could tell that the story had done nothing to reassure Hiram in the least. In fact, the airship captain looked rather frightened at the conclusion of the story, and before Sylvan indicated he would speak again, the airship captain went to the green decanter and poured himself another very substantial snifter. "'You might have done well to bring the letter to the Queen,' said Hiram, shuddering slightly after a long draft. "'Would I?' sneered Sylvan. In the space of about sixteen ticks he had left the corporal realm and was thinking about Ellen again, and about their awkward parting. He should have had her when he'd had the chance, he thought. He left a letter with Libby, which he hoped would be enough to convince Ellen of his intentions, of his feelings, but, damn it, didn't the woman understand? He didn't have the freedom she did. He walked about and did what people told him to. Well, most of the time. Tenders are, well, they were, I suppose now, as real as any of us. An older order, but a holy one nonetheless, if, if she was telling the truth, the captain said. Telling the truth? The old hag was suffering from the pains of her age. She could barely see, and had the audacity to think that any travelling knight would have proximity to the queen. That's preposterous. But she knew, didn't she? I mean, she chose well, considering you had access to the queen on a level that eclipses nearly every other knight, save her non-bastard nephews in the Alder, said Hiram measuredly. He didn't sound anywhere near as drunk as he was but a few ticks ago, and that bothered Sylvan something fierce. Sylvan bit the inside of his cheek. It was numb from the drink, and so he gnawed on it a moment before continuing. Fine. I'll give you that, but it doesn't mean anything. It isn't as if she was foretelling our doom. It just sounds like a bunch of trees fell down. Hiram turned from scarlet to fishbelly white, and he dragged his hand across his now sopping brow. Well, that's what I was going to say. You see, our mission south isn't just to drop you off at the border. It's to survey the land in a north-to-south swath, what was once known as the Alders Gate. It's a long distance, and you can really only see it from the air, said Hiram. He clear cleared his throat and took out his handkerchief. It was embroidered elegantly, the sort married men carried around them as trophies from their wives. Strange that an airship captain would be married, Silva noted, but not impossible. So what could you possibly see that high up? asked Sylvan. Hiram looked down at his stubby fingers and flexed them twice. Only hearsay, of course, but, uh, it's what I was mentioning before. It seems that... Seems? I hate that word, said Sylvan. It either is or isn't whatever it is you think it is. That last it is was purely the fault of the drink. Hiram put the sentence together slowly. Well, you see, no towns border the Elders Gate. It's just never been a place people settled. Whether it's residual from the Great Collision or something else, I don't know. But there are neighbouring towns all up and down the line. One town has reported three herds of cows, of a variety they'd never seen before, with long, shaggy coats appearing out of thin air, in a farmer's field. Two herds of cows, asked Sylvan. Now this was intriguing. And that's what the strange is of it. There's been mention of a man appearing in town, speaking strange languages, asking after the king and queen. Imagine that. The source was a sheriff, no less, scared out of his britches over it. They said he walked away, but before they did, he bought a horse with a whole gold piece, minted pre-collision. But it looked like as if it never seen the light of day. That's absurd. People are just bored and afraid, and the asp just tore through that area. Regardless, I'd be careful if I were you when you crossed that border, said Hiram. The high counselor's kidnapping is serious indeed, but the Soderin are a stranger folk than all that. A large portion of the Aldersgate is still in their land. So, just see what you run into. <laughs> I'll be on the lookout for errant cows, Sylvan said. 
He glanced down at the clock on Hiram's desk, a beautiful thing with exposed gears and iridescent pearl scroll work, and noted the time. He really did have to be going. When the first explosion hit, Ellen thought it was simply part of her dream. She'd been wandering a long hallway in the dream and had turned into the kitchen when the oven burst into flames. It sent everything rumpling, and the walls of the castle began to crumble in the spite of her best efforts to prevent it. And yet, when she woke up, it was her bed that shook. The pitch black of night outside her window flickered once, twice, and then flashed white. Then all was darkness again. Libby? she asked, sliding down off of her bed and taking the blanket with her. The rushes stuck to her feet as she padded across the room in the dark. "'Shite!' said Libby, who had ducked into the hallway and now emerged into the room holding a lantern. "'Time to move.' What, "'What's going on?' Ellen asked blearily. She staggered as the ground beneath her feet shifted. "'What is that?' "'Fecking Ardesians,' said Libby, putting her arm around Ellen's shoulder and forcing her down. "'Fecking feckers!' Why? How? Some of the small porcelain statues she'd brought with her fell to the ground, shattering above the mantle on the marble. A sword clattered to the ground. Looks like they didn't even take your husband's incarceration so well, Libby said, standing slowly and indicating for Ellen to stay where she was. She seemed to be considering something, but Ellen couldn't tell what. Ellen was trembling, and something had nicked her hand. She brought the wound to her mouth and began sucking on it ruefully. We have to get out of here, she said. Really? shot back Libby. I was thinking a rest might be enjoyable. Just as she said it, the room shuddered again and filled with red light. Ellen threw herself into Libby, and they both pressed against the wall as the beam in the ceiling cracked and fell over Ellen's bed, breaking it in half. The whole room groaned around them. Libby didn't spare another moment. She grabbed Ellen around the waist and hauling her sideways down the hall. Too close. Too close. Ellen choked back tears and went limp feeling the fear wash over her so completely. When Libby put her down again, she could barely stand, but the knight insisted. She barked orders, and she struck a guard for getting in her way. They descended down a flight of stairs that Ellen had never noted before, though it wasn't surprising. Her new room was in such an old part of the castle, and one that was so rarely utilized by the family that she had scarcely any idea where she was in relation to everything else. And since Sylvan's departure, she hadn't left her room at all. "'Where are we going?' she asked, her throat afire. Something was burning, and she felt as if she were breathing smoke. To safety. These are the Queen's orders. But how are, how are we being attacked? Shouldn't we have troops to withstand ships, Ardesian ships, a whole fleet, likely? Your room is in perfect range. It appears someone knew where you were spending your time, said Libby, measuredly. She stopped in front of a suit of armor and kicked it out of the way. It clattered to the ground, and behind was a fortified brass and iron door with an elaborate wheel in the middle. Libby spun the wheel three times, twice one way and once another, and it let out a long hiss, but it did not open. We're going down, she said, to the factory. The factory, but... Ellen was cut short by the appearance of a very short, dark-visaged man dressed in black and blue leather with a white bandana on his head. His eyes were covered with clear glass goggles, so she could see his glittering green eyes beneath them. He couldn't have been much larger than the average nine-year-old, and yet he was clearly full-grown. This is Racket, said Libby. Racket, this is Princess Eleonora. Not bad, is it? asked Racket, his voice low and resonant in spite of his small stature. Afraid so, said Libby, and she ushered Ellen in, 
Watch your step here. Take the lantern. Racket, show the way, will you? You, you're a... Ellen said. Gearling? Finished Racket, looking up over his shoulder at Ellen and nodding. The stairs were smooth-hewn stone, and there was a railing. Everything corkscrewed straight down, though, and it was growing colder by the step. They can't bomb here, said Libby, evenly. We'll have you out as soon as we can, but Ellen, listen to me, she paused. Racket, go on ahead, we'll catch up. The lantern handle was growing hot, and Ellen switched it to her other hand, then turned slowly to look up at Libby. She was frowning, her hair disheveled. It reminded Ellen of their days as young girls, chasing rabbits on the lawn and playing tricks of some of their duller cousins. "'Shouldn't we be moving?' asked Ellen. She was feeling more than a little impatient, and she wanted a better look at the gearling. She had no idea there were still any left at the castle. According to Malus, most of them had died during the reign of Corrine I, and Ellen had certainly never had the chance to see one before. "'I've got to ask you something first, Libby said, licking her lips as if the question itself were bitter in her mouth. All right, she started, and then shook her head. She was feeling a little dizzy. And where is everyone else? I suppose the Queen has her own escape route as well as the girls that were brought here. Perhaps we should make sure they're fine before we... Do you want to stay here? Libby asked finally. I mean, as you are. Do you want to stay here for the rest of your life? To be Queen after Malus? I said Ellen, and then shivered a little. She was trying to clear her mind of the fear and the excitement. I... "'Don't suppose I have a choice?' she said. "'You do. Right now. "'I can either do as they asked me and take you south to a safe haven the Queen has built. "'That's where everyone else will be going if they can get out in time. "'Or I can take you somewhere else, and you can decide what it is you want.' "'Ellen scarcely knew what to say. "'Was Libby really suggesting that she run away from all her responsibilities? "'It was a concept she had contemplated many times, but never given hope to.' She had never even expected she'd be given the chance. Then she said, No. I don't... I don't want it. Libby nodded and gestured ahead. Keep going down, and when you hit the bottom, Racket should be at the door. Then we move. Libby called it the factory, but it was really more of an enormous workshop. Here, the gearlings worked night and day on the Queen's various technological creations, from machines of war to the more light-hearted musical instruments she preferred. Quite literally underground, the factory resided in the middle of an immense cavern, purportedly dug into the rock as the castle was being built. Vents rose high in the ceiling, and from the Queen's Way leading into Hartley, smokestacks rose from the fields, the only sign that the factory gave away. At the very center was the furnace, the steam engine responsible for keeping everything at Hartley Castle going. It provided heat in the winter and powered fans in the summer. It meant that hot water ran at all times, and that the cooks never had to worry about their ovens going cold. And above all, it meant that Queen Malus could enjoy her various playthings, from automated musicians to a, a huge aviary filled with metallic birds all run off of steam from the furnace. The whole of the factory was shaped like a gear, with a central circle reserved for the furnace and spokes containing smaller, specified workshops in other directions. With a glance to her left, Ellen could spy the aviatric section, where engineers worked tirelessly repairing, improving, and inventing flying machines. These ranged from the Queen's fleet of airships, currently housed above the north side hangar, to the single piloted avians, like the one that the aeronauts flew. Ellen was amazed at the number of gearlings, so much so that she was gaping rather inappropriately. Libby leaned over. Staring isn't going to help us make better time. Oh, I'm sorry, Ellen said, blushing. She was feeling very odd down here, and more than a little ill. 
The vibrations from all the machines were making the insides of her ears tickle, and the air was so thick each breath seemed insufficient. Libby led Ellen through one of the rooms, one of the spokes on the gear, and the workers, many of whom were moving at incredibly fast paces, scarcely noticed the princess and her bodyguard. Libby's strides were often long enough to leave Ellen in the dust, but Racket moved at a little more manageable space. They went through a passageway, and then into what looked like an office. The door read, Q. Jonas, and Libby knocked three times. Ellen had seen Quintessa Jonas a handful of times at court, but never close up. What shocked her was how young the woman was. As the only female aeronaut in the Queen's service, and arguably the best pilot among them, she was something of a sensation, a celebrity. Her hair was red, as her father was originally from Moor, but it was closer to carrot orange. Cropped short, it fell in waves to either side of her face, poking out from underneath her close-fitting leather cap. She was trim and relatively fit, but her face still held onto the round softness of youth, her lips plump and pursed. Her eyes were common and blue, but pretty still, rimmed with such red lashes. Around her neck was swathed a thin scarf embroidered with strawberries, stuffed into the top of her jacket. She looked as if she were just leaving. Lib, Sir Bell, said Tess, looking back and forth between the ladies and then realizing who Ellen was. Oh, Princess, my apologies. She dipped into the sorriest excuse for a curtsy Ellen had ever seen. It looked more like one of her knees had just given out. Nothing to concern yourself with, Ellen said a little weakly. She was getting dizzier by the moment, and when she looked down at her feet, she thought the ground was undulating under her. Princess, asked Libby, taking Ellen by the arm. I'm sorry, I'm just... Ellen was trying to put words together, but her thoughts were evaporating as she had them. In fact, everything seemed to be evaporating around her, evaporating to blackness. She thought for a moment she was in a rainstorm, except that the drops were black as ink, and soon everything would be covered in it. It was then that she realized the hem of her dress had gone red, but that soon was covered in black, too. She reached up blindly behind her head and felt something sharp protruding from her neck, rough and ragged like wood. The last thing she saw was Libby's shocked face, and then she drifted off to dark sleep. When Sylvan awoke the next morning in his quarters, his skin felt like it had been stretched over his bones, and his mouth was as dry as ash. He rubbed his face, the stubble prickling against his palms, and shuddered. He was still on the damned ship. What had he been drinking last night? He couldn't recall feeling this down in his cups in years. When he put his feet down on the carpet, the pressure from his own weight caused him to groan in pain. He supposed the question now was how much he'd had to drink. Dangerously much. Shivering and feeling nauseated already, he fumbled in his satchel for some more cigs. He'd managed a swift trade with one of the visiting nobles in Hartley in exchange for a swiped flower from the Queen's garden. He managed the better end of the deal he thought greedily, as he kindled the end of the cig and rolled the brown cylinder between his fingers before drawing gently on it. The smoke was sweet, smooth, and a much better crop than the last dozen he'd had. When the cig did its job quelling his broiling stomach, Sylvan went to the wash basin and saved, doused himself with a bit of cold water, and then dressed as best he could. His change of clothing was in the trunk stored in baggage, so he had to wear the same from last night, which he noticed with a wince, smelled of whiskey and vomit. He didn't remember throwing up. Finally, it was time to go to the window. Sylvan hated heights, and he never trusted the speed of these airships. Too fast, he thought, in spite of Hiram's suggestion to the, to the contrary. 
He would have gone by horse if it had made sense, but as it was, he felt like floating this way with an announcement to his presence to the entire continent, floating along in the air like a damned bloated beast. Below, the terrain was brown and dead, and not a few brush fires still smoldered. Rocky, desolate, no wonder the Soderans were so sour about being relocated. It was a piss-hole of a place, and some of the more ungentrified territories folk would say. Strange, though. They were slowing at an alarming pace, and they were nowhere near where they ought to be. There would be a distinct garrison, and no matter which way Sylvan looked, he couldn't see it, let alone a road. It looked as if they had swerved off course. He was just about to leave the room when there was a knock on his door. His hand froze on the handle, and he tried to ignore the prickling sensation at the back of his neck. Something was not right. "'Who is it?' asked Sylvan. "'De Barris, sir,' replied the other knight. And Sylvan was indeed glad to see the other bastard when he opened the door, even if he did look as if, if, as if he'd not slept in months. "'Gods, man, you look as bad as I feel,' he said. "'These ships don't settle well with me,' admitted the other knight, but shook his head. "'No matter. We've got to disembark. We're coming up upon the border, but we can't make a landing. We'll have to ride the rest of the way.' "'What?' asked Sylvan, shutting the door behind him and joining de Barris. "'Why in the heavens can't we land at the borders?' "'It's on fire,' said de Barris, as evenly as he said anything, but his face gave away his surprise. "'From horizon to horizon.' It would turn us into an inferno, and if we spent time trying to scout our way all along the border, we'd be days behind schedule. We have word that the High Counselor is to be delivered at a certain location within a window of time, and we just can't risk a life. When did word of this reach us? That's where it gets a little complicated. The complication de Bear spoke of came in the form of a mechanized beetle the size of an apple. It was a combination of brass and spokes, and one of the deckhands had found it late last night attached to the hull of the ship, happily boring a hole through the Arabella's side. The deckhand said he heard something grinding, and set out expecting to find a lost bird. He had caught the beetle with a net, and took it to the captain, who was, as de Barris put it, indisposed. When Sylvan could not be found, the crew went to de Barris, who was able to open the ottoman and extract a note, detailing the high counselor's whereabouts. But it is authentic, and includes a seal from Alivar, that's one of Alisar's sons, and a lock of the High Counselor's hair as proof and promise, said de Barris darkly. I shudder to think what that poor woman has been through. Then I suppose that means we'll be riding soon, said Sylvan. With your permission, of course, sir, within the hour. At least we'll be off this damned ship. I would rather like the feeling of dirt beneath my feet again. Much agreed, sir, said de Barris. Any word from Corbin's regiment? asked Sylvan. Not a word but we still have time. They kept walking briskly until they came to the outer walkway, an open-air perimeter around the actual body of the ship that had to be accessed to get to lower decks. The air was acrid, the smoke from the fires rising up and blowing in their faces. Sylvan's vision blurred his eyes, and he felt as if he'd rubbed hot spices into them. Just a moment, started Sylvan, but he felt the blow too late. The smoke has obscured his vision. The pain in his side was sharp, unabating. A dagger. Had to be. But the smoke. He couldn't see. And now? De Barris grabbed him by the shoulders, and his knee came up, winding him entirely. If Sylvan could just get his hand out, but no. Not enough time. Even as he thought it, he felt the rail at his back slide, and with one shove, Sir De Barris threw him over the side of the airship. Sylvan de Loire tumbled, flailing, from the side of the Arabella into the smoldering earth below. I'm sorry, Ellen, he thought. 
first heard the news over the horn. They called it the horn, but it really looked more like intertwining plumbing, and was the internal communication for everyone in the castle who needed quick information. One of Robin's designs, it consisted of brass pipes and slots wherein one would place discs to change the direction of sound, going from one place to another. Everything was color-coded by floor and wing, so it was relatively easy to decipher where a message was coming from and, if you were around long enough, who was speaking. Ben only had two pipes in Hea's room— one for the queen and one from the factory. Those were the only two places Hea could go, as the current Sib physic in residence. A short plume of steam indicated a call was on its way, and then a short whistle. And no one but the queen ever called. Hea was packing up Hea's bag after receiving a frenzied message from one of the rose guards upstairs that there had been an assault on one of the towers, and that the princess was missing. The queen, it reported, was already at a safe location, but all physics were required to meet after convening by the south tunnel, one that led straight out of the castle and down to the rocks below. There were safe houses there, fortified metal structures kept just in case of such an assault. But how in the hell had someone attacked the castle anyway? Ben heard very little, and that was usually from Hea's brother, Sylvan. But Sylvan had been too busy to drop by during his short visit, and had been deployed once again, so Ben was left to put the pieces together. Strictly speaking, the Sib was more of an alchemist, and not allowed to practice medicine on anyone in the castle save if the queen commanded Hayon. Sibs were kept out of sight, but as a technical relation to the queen, Haya had been granted clemency. Ben? The voice was timid, unfamiliar. When Ben turned around, Haya had been sure it was coming from the queen, but no, this time it was from the factory. This, this is the physic, Haya said, cautious. Very few people knew that Haya was even living in the castle, and Haya wasn't about to start advertising it. There were plenty of people who'd like nothing more than to string up a sib for conspiracy or whatever other charges they could invent. He had seen it happen before. Ben, this is Tessa Jonas from the hangar. Libby says to tell you we have a situation. Oh, shite. Situation. That meant... Ellen. Ben took a moment to remember to breathe. With the chaos in the castle, Hea's thoughts were jumbled up enough as it was. Hea had to concentrate to be calm, because if Hea entered into anything without a sound mind, then... Yes, yes, I'm sorry, Ben said. I'll be right there, fast as I can. But the lift won't be working, so I'll have to take the stairs. Thank you, Tessa said. And don't move her, don't... I mean, just... Everything was different, and Hea didn't want to risk the chance that they were being overheard on the horn. I'm coming as fast as I can. Hea picked up the pace and collected what Hea could, which was manageable. So much of medicine was just hearsay. Half of the concoctions Ben made were complete bunk. They wouldn't heal a newt, let alone a human being. And some of them were even made with newt. Ben swayed on Hea's feet and wished that the god had had the chance to speak to Sylvan first. Hadn't he just been there? Couldn't the fecking Ardesians have attacked when Sylvan was here to protect them all? By the time Ben arrived at the factory, Hea was dripping sweat. Hea's black hair was stuck to the side of Hea's face, and Hea was so out of breath that Hea could scarcely get a word out. Panting, Ben mopped Hea's hand over Hea's brow and looked down at the scene. The gearlings had worked swiftly and put up a screen, so at least there was privacy, but when Hea looked up to see what had befallen the princess, Hea wanted to vomit from shock. Gods, how, how did this happen? And how? 
I can't imagine she got a piece of shrapnel in her neck down here, Ben said, shooting a withering glance at Labella Fenley, whose hands were red from staunching the wound. The rose guard looked as if she had been crying, which Ben knew was quite sure the first in her entire career. There was an explosion from outside, said Libby, in her quarters. I thought we dodged everything. I, I could have sworn we had. But when we got down here, she started acting strange. Then we noticed the shrapnel. Ben grit Hayes teeth. Idiot knights. Gods, did they have a whole brain between them, the whole retinue? I'm going to have to put it asleep, or at least into a sleep I can control. Don't want her waking up in the middle of this, Hayes said, rummaging through Hayes' bag. And I need some hot water. You, you there, get me some water. Yes, sir, said the gearling. Sir? Oh, right. Today Ben had dressed with trousers. That usually did it. Tessa, the pilot, was looking worse for wear herself. She was wringing her hands. Shouldn't you be out there sending explosives toward the Lodesian ships? asked Ben, after he had found the right dose and a syringe. I, I'm not supposed to. Not in the event of a situation, she said. Sylvan's orders. She's flying out of here? asked Ben, this time to Libby. She wants out, Libby said lowly. She blinked three times, then shivered. It was the last thing she said to me. With all the other girls here, and her husband in the dungeons, Sylvan said she was going mad with it all. He said if she asked, you'll tell me Sylvan knew about this attack. No, but he knew it was a possibility. It's been volatile, and he indicated that if something were to happen, there would be ways that we could get her out of the castle and to safety. How in the hell will you do that? Every passageway is going to be sealed off, said Ben, gently moving Ellen's face to the left and to the right. The shrapnel had grazed one of her arteries, hence the blood, but was also preventing her blood flow. Not good. Not good at all. Libby and Tess exchanged looks, and Ben sighed. Seems to me you got a plan already. I'm going to fly out and fake a fall. I can do that, said Tess. A and I'll meet you after... After we take her through the morgue, finished Libby. We? Morgue? No, no. I'm not playing that game again. LaBelle knew the game. When they were children... Ellen, Sylvan, Ben, and Libby, they would often bet one another to see who was the bravest. One night, they had bet Sylvan that he couldn't spend a turn in the morgue. They had all laughed after leaving him down there, but he didn't return when the sun went down, and they had to ask the queen to intercede to try and find him. He had been hiding in a supply closet, near to the point of shock after seeing the mortician perform an autopsy. It's not a game, Ben, insisted Libby. She was getting irritated with Hayon. That was clear from the way she kept clenching her jaw. It's the only way that's not going to be sealed. We can take her down and through the way, and that will put us under the cover of rocks. Ben felt for Ellen's pulse. It was light, irregular. He had have to remove the shrapnel, but to do so would cause her to bleed to death. Then they'd really need to take her to the morgue. I can give her a combination of two drugs, said Ben, pressing Hayes' fingers to Hayes' face. It was not a good time for a headache, but there it was. It'll slow down her breath to almost nothing, put her halfway to death. But her heart will beat so slow, it's unlikely she'll bleed to death, at least for three turns. Until I can get her to some place where I can remove this and not be the death of her. I can't bear that. I couldn't. They all stopped short because the furnace let out a cataclysmic roar, and gearlings flew in every direction, some catching on fire. One of the steam pipes had burst, likely from the assault above. There was screaming and the smell of burning skin as the engineers rushed to the scene. "'Do it!' shouted Libby at Ben. "'We've got to get out of here. Tess, go. We'll meet up with you.' "'God's help us all,' Ben said, and Hea found a small, black, liquored vial. Hea took a deep breath, measured the dose, 
and gently pressed the syringe into the vein at Ellen's inner elbow, then watched as the color from her already pale face drained completely from her. A few quick post-podcast notes here. Um, Clearly, the most difficult part about uh, number 27 has been the fact that there are more characters in this um, in this chapter than there are in just about any other chapter between Hiram and Sylvan and Libby and Ellen and Ben and Tess. Um, it was quite a little bit of a juggling experience, uh, getting voices right or wrong or pronunciations right or wrong. <laughs> Sometimes you have to just kind of let it go at a point. So um, definitely a lot of fun to read, though, from from my perspective. Lots of things happening, however, at the same time, so a very busy chapter. Not only are we experiencing a battle on the home front in the territories, or rather on the little north of the border of the territories at the Xena Ranch, but now the castle is being assaulted at the same time, so a two-fronted war of sorts. The Ardesians have been rightfully pissed off and have taken matters into their own hands. Um... So Sylvan gets pushed off of the airship indeed, and um, I won't say anything more about that. And Ellen's fate itself is hanging in the balance as well. I can only say we have a few more chapters, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, learn a little bit more before the very, very end of this book. Thanks again for listening to Aldersgate and Alderpod. I very much appreciate you listening. Alderpod is written, produced, and performed by Natanya Barron under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States License.